0: Welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are
1: you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, Michael. I'm wishing I had that uh, half-elf racial save against magical sleep, but uh, I think I'm doing okay. Things could be worse then, I guess. Could be very worse. So
0: pretty much we're just going to jump into today's topic because it's sort of a continuation or a reboot of last episode where we kind of got off topic too much and we started meandering and we really weren't providing what I felt was quality information. So we're going to talk about campaigning and building your own campaign worlds. But before we do that, we have one thing we always have to do first, and that's take a step back and say why we're here. So Caleb and I try to use these table topic episodes to share some of the wisdom that he and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the advice and opinions we share may not be applicable at every table, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we do feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice?
1: If you're having fun, you're doing it right.
0: That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, what system or edition, or what rules you use, don't use or misuse. If you're having fun you're playing the game correctly. And with that out of the way, we're gonna jump into campaigning. Now we did touch on this a little bit last episode, but we're gonna kind of recap some of that here and then hopefully move forward. So the thing I wanna start with for both of us, and Caleb, you answered this last time so we can kind of recap it, is why do you put the time, effort, and energy into creating your own campaign world rather than using an established property that exists like Dark Sun or Eberron or Forgotten Realms or outside of D&D, you know, playing in Star Wars or Star Trek type of a thing?
1: Okay, so I have two answers to this question. First off, it's more fun, and I think it's easier. I have a lot more enjoyment at my game table when both I and my players can create the game world that we're playing in. I think it makes for a more entertaining and a more engaging story. And I think it amps up the excitement of everyone at the table. If a player can say, hey, my character comes from such and such wizard academy, and then we take five minutes to create that wizard academy and make it important, that player now has a much more visceral connection to this make-believe world. I also think it's... Just flat out easier. Like I said, sitting down and taking half an hour, an hour, a couple hours even, to knock out some facts about a game world is a lot less work, in my opinion. I might be wrong, than trying to crack open a couple source books and read over everything and make sure all our decisions line up with what's already been established for whatever reality we're playing in. And that kind of leads into my second answer When I'm playing in an established world, I'm a lot more hesitant and careful about making decisions because there is that weight of this world exists, I'm just stepping my foot into it kind of thing, and I don't want to make a mistake. Not just Dungeons and Dragons, but look at something like L5R. Look at something like what is my favorite game, Shadowrun. These are examples of games that are so well created and have such a thick history that walking into it, you have to know those facts. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying, oh, okay, so we're going to play Shadowrun, but we're off here in such and such a city, and it's my own little sprawl, and here's this corporation. There's nothing ever wrong with making up your own version of an established property. But when you are walking into an established property, Shadowrun, L5R, Star Wars, Star Trek, X-Men, there's that concept of I've got to do what's there. I've got to match what's there. So it either is a lot more work and requires a lot more buy-in from everyone at the table, or you're a little more hesitant about just saying what happens. When I'm running a game in my own homebrew world, if I want to say, oh, yeah, all the dwarves are shapeshifters, sure, why not? All the elves are part dragon. Okay, sure. I'm making up those rules as I go, so it doesn't matter. I'm doing what's right for the story. If I'm saying, all right, I'm going to play in an established world, I have to follow the guidelines of this world. So as a GM, I might be hampering my storytelling ability a little bit.
0: Okay, and and for the most part, I agree with almost everything you said there, which, you know, is is rare for me. But I do enjoy creating my own campaign worlds. And in some cases, I think it might be more work. I don't know that it's easier. I just think the difficulty is shifted into different places in different ways. But a lot of my game prep is mental. I've, I've said that many times before on my commutes to and from work, when I'm just sitting somewhere bored in a meeting, my mind is always wondering. And I'm always where my mind is always wandering, I should say. And I am, uh, I'm thinking about the game and a lot of that creative energy is flowing into creating my own world. And, you know, I think we've mentioned this before, but you and I both kind of fancy ourselves as writers and someday would like to be writers. And I think that's part of, you know, whether we are that because we want to be writers or we want to be writers because of that aspect of our personality. It sounds like we both enjoy the process of creation and in this place, a creation of a campaign world. There is also the, the issue that I've brought up before where if I'm in an established property and someone at my table happens to know it as well as I do or most likely better than I do, then I'm afraid that I'm going to screw something up. And I'll say, oh, yeah, you meet a uh, someone named Elminster and uh, he's a evil cleric. Okay, if you are familiar with Forgotten Realms, you know that's not actually true. And maybe that's part of my story, but it's still going to be a hiccup in someone else's mind when they have to go, well, that's not the Elminster I know, or maybe this is part of some larger plan. And rather than being like, oh, that's a cool story, they have to do some mental jump roping to go, Okay, well, why does that make sense? How does that make sense? They've stopped paying attention because they're trying to do their own, you know, again, mental gymnastics. And I just think it's more of a distraction than it is a, a help. And even if they don't, aren't bothered by it, they still have to deal with it. And that takes them out of the game for a few minutes. And I just would prefer to avoid that. And then my experience is most of your players, God love them, aren't going to read anything about your background. Whether you write it yourself or you say we're playing an Eberron, here's a link to a Wikipedia page. Most of them aren't going to read it. They're not going to be versed in all the depth of this world. So some of the benefit of using it is lost. Because if you say, oh, this is part of the Dragon Mouse house to Caneth, and you think that they now know what that means, so you can just lay out some very subtle hints, no, you're still going to be explaining what all that means and all the different houses and how they interact. Most of the time, I'm sure there's exceptions. In my, in my experience, no. So it's easier for me to just assume they don't know anything about my world and lay it out to them as I need to to get their buy-in and their, you know, their interaction in my world in the correct way. So it sounds like for the most part, you and I are pretty much on the same page. So let's move then into the actual process. So I'll start with you. Again, we're going to try to avoid the ones we're currently working on unless it's just super relevant. But once you've decided or you've had the inspiration to start your next campaign world, how do you actually go about making that manifest?
1: Well, I guess it really depends on what, my inspiration was for this project. If it started with an idea that I had, it it was probably something like, oh, well what if this one thing about the fantasy generic trope was different? And then I kind of tried to extrapolate and build from that starting point. If I was inspired by maybe a book or a movie or a particular element of a video game, something like that, I'll start with, again, that moment of inspiration and say, okay, what came before this to make it happen and what comes after it to make it more interesting? Sometimes I start my ideas for a campaign, whether or not I'm creating the whole world or just kind of using a generic one, with an actual scene of the game. I'll get this picture in my head of a showdown on a battlefield or an interesting exchange in a temple or a tavern. I'll start with an actual, okay, we're playing the game and here's what's happening. And then I work backwards to say, okay, what's the world that this is happening in? And what needs to happen in that world to make this scene happen? So... I'm kind of all over the place. I don't really have a set, I start with this and move on to here kind of pattern. I just start with whatever makes for me a good place to say, oh, okay, well, this is an idea and figure out that idea. And sometimes that idea is what my players asked. Uh, There was a campaign I started working on for my home group, I don't know how long ago, a year, year and a half ago, probably. Where my one friend said, okay, I want to play D&D, but I want it to be more episodic. Because we can't get together every week, so I want a game that it doesn't really matter if we can't play for a month or whatever. So it needs to be episodic, it needs to be kind of just short chunks of a story. And I think it'd be really interesting if the world we played in was kind of like Supernatural. In the sense that... We're still playing D&D, it's still a fantasy game, but there's all this stuff going on around our characters that they can't control and is way more powerful than them, and they're just kind of average people who still have class abilities and magic and, and whatever, but they're struggling against something that they really have no hope at succeeding against. So I very simply took his request and And translated that into a pretty interesting and unique game world that I would love to go back to if we ever had a chance.
0: So it sounds like you and I uh, are very similar in that process as well. Because I often will have sort of the inspiration will come to me as a scene. And I clearly see something happening. And like that would make an awesome moment. How do I get there from a game standpoint? What characters do I need? What world do I need? What factions do I need? You know, what the setup would be. And I just start working backwards from there. Sometimes I'll take a TV show or a movie I've watched or a book I've read and I'll kind of mishmash them together and create something somewhat new but certainly has elements. And then... You know, that that's I guess I'm and I'm not saying this very clearly, is I usually start with something very small, that a single moment, a single scene, a single idea. And then like you kind of mentioned, in like these concentric circles, almost like a ripple in a pond, you feel the rock in the middle, and it just gets bigger as it needs to. And I know I've said this before, is I think big, but I play small. The first game that we play in a campaign world is not going to reveal everything about the world. Whether the world is set up to be a mystery or not, it's just not going to explain all of it. So, you don't need all of it when you start. You just need that instigating moment. Whether that be two ships that are fighting in a sea, which turns out to be uh, a landlocked, it's like more like a great lake, and neither one of them knew it, or something crazy like that. Or again, are all dwarves or shapeshifters? Or there's aliens and magic daggers? Whatever the case may be, once you have that, you build from there. I will do a lot of just mental thinking and you know, building in my head for sometimes weeks, months at a time before we actually play. But a lot of the true creation will come in my Session Zero. Very recently, I started a game which it has not taken off. I still have hopes that it will, called Spirits. And this was a mishmash of the Heralds of Valdemar series by Mercedes Lackey, Judge Dredd, and uh, the Dark Tower series by, the, by Stephen King. And I wanted to put all three of those together and all of the characters were going to play something called spirits, which are very much like heralds from the Heralds of Aldemar, where they have the ability to, to sort of merit out justice, uh, in this sort of frontiersman like, uh, land and they have guns. It's a fantasy se- uh, series, but they have guns and they are the only ones that can use them. It, it's like some sort of magical prophecy thing that unless you were chosen to be one of these spirits, you cannot fire these guns. And that's how, you know, you, you get the gun. That means you're worthy. They train you. And then you go out in the world. And I'm like, that seems pretty interesting. And then I brought the players together. and We had a session zero. And they kept asking questions like, well, where did the guns come from? I don't know. When I made up the world, I, they just had them. And so I had to like start thinking about that. And they would say, well, what happens if this happens? What happens if someone who's not a spirit gets a gun? Can they use it? Well, I don't think so. But why not? And then in the process of them creating the characters they would play, they needed more information that I had readily available. So I had to then create those moments. And I think that's what most of us do. And hopefully you're doing a session zero. So you do that before you actually start playing the game. But even once you're in the game, that stuff is still going to come up. Well, I'm gonna talk to this guy and I'm gonna ask him a question. How does he react knowing that I'm a spirit? Well, I don't know. How does the common person react to the spirits? And and that interaction process is also a creative process.
1: Now, here's an interesting question. We both share a very similar idea of how we approach designing campaigns in a campaign world. Did you always do it like this? Because you've been gaming for a lot longer than I have, and I know you've been creating things for a lot longer than I have. So, has your process changed over the years?
0: Yes and no. Because, of course, I can't have simple answers. But when I first started, again, I was like 12 or something. I didn't, I mean, we played in my own settings, but the settings had no details. It was just you were in a town. And realistically, the world did not exist outside of that town until the characters decided to leave that town. So I, I had no idea of, like, politics, socioeconomic, you know, racial relations. None of that was in my game. You were a bunch of adventurers in a town. There was a cave outside of town that had a bunch of goblins in it. And you went and killed them and tucked their stuff. And that's how my game started. But as I you know, got older and I began reading more media and getting more and more involved in wanting to be a writer, and I think the, the process of how you create a novel or a short story to me is now intertwined in a way that I cannot separate from how I would start a campaign. So that's just my process. I have no idea. Uh, it sounds like you and I have a similar one, but we also have a similar background in wanting to be storytellers outside of A role-playing game so i'm not sure if that makes sense for everyone to follow that method or not okay
1: uh for me it definitely changed when i first started learning how to be a gm i went the extreme opposite and i created the entire planet the entire world where my adventure happened when the story actually started in one tiny little town on one tiny little continent in the middle of nowhere. I went so far as to, and here's a great little insight into how crazy I get about details. Sometimes I went so far as going to my library on campus, finding an atlas So I had a scale version of the map of our planet, of Earth, and tracing over continents and countries to make a world map for my game world so that everything was to scale and it made sense. So I took a a huge piece of graph paper, laid it over the map, and was tracing over like Africa but turning it on its side— And flipping things around and, okay, here's Australia. Let me drag that over here and this is now up here. And, okay, here's South America, but I'm going to cut it in half and kind of trace it. I just wanted everything to look right and be the right proportion so that I could tell my players, okay, guys, you're starting in BFE nowhere in this tiny little town, but here's a map of the entire planet because I thought that's what I needed. And I would go into my campaign and say, okay, I'm going to make up that this is the third age of this planet and here's everything that happened in the 3,000 years before. I distinctly remember and still have on my bookshelf a timeline of about 3,000 years of happenings for one of my first campaign settings. And I can tell you for a fact that in my very first game of that campaign, no one gave a sh** about what I had written. I had the map. I had the timeline. I had all this stuff about my own pantheon and who was related to whom and how such and such a deity impacted the wizards and how a different one impacted the clerics. And no one cared. No, they said, okay, great, we're heroes. We're gonna go fight some lizards. Awesome.
0: Yeah, and I think and I'm gonna, you know, some of my preferences are gonna come out in here, but I think that's a common thing that happens, particularly when you're new to this, is you feel like you have to do all this extra work so that you're prepared because most of us are terrified of improving. And what happens if they ask me something? I don't know the answer. It's going to destroy the the reality of our pretend game. And they're going to realize that I'm making all this up. Yes. This actually reminds me of an example one of our early episodes with Evan back in the Dungeon Talk days where he was creating a town that we started in. And he had actually written names and rolled stats for every NPC in the village. I did that too. (laughs) Yeah, that's insane. Because yes, on the off chance that that information is needed, it's super cool that you have it. But all the time and effort that you spent doing that could have been better spent, I would argue, doing other things, uh, you know, other mental preparations or other types of preparation that are more likely to happen. What you described would be perfect if you're writing a novel, maybe even a series of novels, because you are going to be in control of the quote-unquote players in that sense They're going to go where you need them to go. So your world is unveiled a layer at a time and the mystery is, you know, laid out before us you know, it matches up to the action of the scene. Great. But like you said, once you add players, they're like, I just want to go to the tavern and get drunk tonight, or I want to go kill some goblins. All that work is probably not going to be used. And then you're not going to be ready For what they actually want to do, uh, which is just goof around and have fun and do the things you didn't anticipate. So there's nothing wrong with doing it, but understand that most likely it's going to be wasted effort that would be better served at doing other things.
1: Now, there are definitely situations where your game, your game table, your campaign, your players want that type of structure or the story you want to tell the game you want to play requires that type of structure. So by no means are we saying this is a bad technique. I honestly think it's a good exercise to learn how to create a campaign world on the fly. It's a good warm-up. It's a good practice. And who knows, you might come up with some really fun ideas while you're doing it that you can pull into something else. But it's very much a rookie move. It's very much a... I need to be prepared because I don't know what I'm doing, so I want to just know everything so that I can always have an answer. And it's really scary to be a GM, especially your first few times around. Some people are just naturally born with the talents and the skills at performance, but that's a very small percentage. I am not one of those people. Uh, In in spite of growing up in the theater and doing speeches and stuff for school— When I started to be a GM, I still had that panic moment of, what happens if I don't know the answer? And that's why, exactly like you said, Michael, I went crazy to try to figure out every answer before the question was asked. And as we've said, as probably someone far smarter than us said, and we just stole, no plans survive interaction with your players. Absolutely. So let's talk about, though, what we do now. So we
0: both have learned from previous mistakes. And, you know, I think both of us do a, a good job comparatively to, you know, creating a campaign world that our players get to play in now. So what is our current process? What, what do you do now to get prepared for a game? Like, again, we're not going to spill Rot Iron, but you are running Rot Iron. So how did you get to that point?
1: Well, I think Rot Iron is kind of a unique example because, and we touched on this last week, I think. I didn't go into wrought iron with any concepts about the world itself. I just knew a few basic elements of the story that I wanted to see play out. When we started preparing wrought iron, this truly was a group effort, and all four of us started sharing concepts and ideas, and all four of us really fleshed it out. So, that's I really feel that's a unique situation and unfortunately we can't talk about all of it because it is an ongoing game let's say well let's go back to the uh the the concept i brought up earlier the the whole supernatural episodic but still fantasy genre game okay so when i was preparing this campaign world all i had to go on was what my friend requested I want this type of game. He didn't say anything about the world. He didn't say anything about the genre. He just said, I want a game that feels like this thing. And I said to myself, okay, so what is a campaign world that I feel I could properly tell this type of story in? So for whatever reason, I decided that this this type of story was going to happen in a world after a near apocalyptic event. Because I said to myself, if I'm telling a story where the characters have access to heroic types of magic and class abilities, but the world around them is still scary and unknown and possibly overpowering and deadly, how does that happen? Well, something really bad happened, and it's kind of post-apocalypse, and there's crazy monsters, and no one can really travel anymore, so... Towns are very, very isolated and information is very hard to share. That made sense to me in that moment. So that was my starting point. Like we said 20 minutes ago here, we get one idea and that's the, the stone we throw into the pond and then we look for the ripples. So my stone was fantasy trope after an apocalypse go. So that's where I started. And then I started trying to figure out how to make that apocalypse really interesting because that was my next logical step. It was, okay, if I'm going to go with the fact that the world ended and we're living in this very horrible, hard to live environment now, what could have happened that made it so difficult to live? Now, I've used the concept of a great big war that kind of destroyed the planet many times in my games. I've used the concept... Most people have. Most people have. You're absolutely right. I've used the concept of the raw, core, fundamental powers of divine and arcane and primal magic went wild, and they're clashing, and it's damaged the entire world before. I didn't want to do something like that. I knew I could tell those stories and I knew that that was a perfectly acceptable concept to put into the trope, but I wanted something different. So I said to myself, okay, what is a big, crazy, horrible event that would cause this type of effect, but not be something I've used before? And I said, okay, a big thing hit the planet and destroyed most of it. Not a new idea in any way. It happened for real, and it's been used in pretty much every single book genre, comic book, movie, video game ever. But I hadn't used it in one of my games before, so it was new, and I went with it. On top of that, one of my players had brought up the idea that she came from a very isolated mountain village, almost like a monastery, where the concepts of ninjas and samurais still existed, but we were still within this fantasy world. So it, it was kind of bringing over the whole uh, Asian combat trope in D&D fantasy, which is totally a thing, but she wanted to stress the fact that she was very, very isolated And that she was one of the few people that came out of that part of the world to see the rest of it. So I wanted to validate her ideas and concepts and have it make sense with my idea of this post-apocalyptic something smashed into the planet kind of thing. So I said, what if this thing that smashed into the planet actually created a big giant expanse that was really, really difficult to traverse. And that's where all the crazy monsters came from. And all of these points of safety, these little cities, were all kind of dots around the edge of this expanse. And the world was so damaged, it was almost impossible to travel straight line between these cities. You had to go the long way around to get anywhere. So that kind of started fleshing out what I wanted to do. That also gave me a source of all the problems of this world. This unpassable, really, really dangerous territory became the source of all the crazy monsters and crazy, unknowable things that the players couldn't figure out and would probably kill them. So, long story short, I started with one little idea and then figured out how to incorporate these different elements in a way that I felt created an environment for a very interesting story to be told. I think
0: well for one, I think I don't I don't think I phrased my question very well. So I'm going to respond to what you said and then kind of give what my answer would have been so that you have a better idea of what I was looking for there. One of the secrets that you will learn if you spend a lot of time writing stories is that the story is what you tell. And what I mean by that, as long as the story is interesting, the reader will generally follow along with any ridiculousness that you put in there, because the the story is what you tell. And some people look for, you know, realism, like, well, why would that happen? But as long as they're interested, they won't do that till later. And that's okay. So if you're telling a story and you, in your mind, you know that the monsters all come from here. Great. If the, if the players class characters ask where the monsters come from, you have an answer. But if you keep the game exciting enough and interesting enough, they're not going to have time to wonder, well, where did this monster come from? They're just going to be dealing with that. They're going to be dealing with what's going on in the story. So don't feel like you have to have an answer to every possible question. Again, that goes back to thousand year timelines and NPCs that are rolled up. The chances that you'll need that are slim, particularly if you keep the game interesting and fun. But what I was specifically getting at for the question there is, so for me, again, I do most of my prep work mentally for both good and bad. I think it does allows me to do a good job of improvising and going with it on the fly and having information top of mind so that in the game I can keep the flow. But I'm sure I screw things up and I create contradictions because I forgot the thing that I meant to write down and didn't. But when I do write things down, the way that I do it is this, I use note cards. And I'm older, I probably should use a computer programming for this, but I don't. But I use multicolored index cards. And I don't necessarily have a color that X equals Y, but each time I do it, I do. And I will write the names of the players and their PCs on one color. And then I'll write the name of all the NPCs that they have helped me create or I've created through the session zero or whatever on a different color. I will flip it over on the NPC cards and I will write things like physical traits or uh, mannerisms, just one or two things that will make them stick out. Uh, Obviously, this is only for the important ones, but, you know, do they stutter? Do they always lie? Do they have a certain uh, exasperated, uh, you know, colloquialism that they use when confronted with something crazy by mistress beard or something along those lines? And then I also usually try to put like why they're important. Do they know something? Are they going to be put in danger? Are they going to ask the the players to go do something? Ask the characters to do something. I will create one of those for um locations. So if I know at some point in time they're going to go to the abandoned mansion out in the woods, I'm going to write abandoned mansion in the woods and on the backside I'm going to write a couple things of what they might find there, why they might go there, or how they will get, you know, how they will get to that place. And if I do this, you know, five or six of each one of these, I start to have this sort of spiderweb-looking contraption of interconnectivity where, okay, so this NPC is important because they already know this PC. They know about the Haunted Mansion, but they may not know about the doppelganger that's currently using it as a base of operations. But this other NPC knows that there's a doppelganger that's infiltrated the Thieves' Guild, but they don't know what the base of operations is. And the process of writing all that out helps me... Remember it uh, same way I did in school. I I never studied for tests, but I would always take really good notes, and the process of writing the notes would help me do well on the tests. So the process of writing all that out usually is enough. I still have the cards if I need to reference them. Reference them, but usually I don't have to. Well, at least I can get by with not. But the fact that I have them if I need them is 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 good for me. So along those lines, like the, the physicalness of your campaign world, do you still have a campaign notebook? Do you use a computer program? Do you have note cards? So like when you actually do write information down, what does your process look like, Caleb?
1: Okay, yeah. I totally
0: didn't realize that was a question you were asking before. I'm not sure that was the question I asked before, but that's what I meant to ask.
1: So we'll go with that. We'll go with that, yeah. Okay, so just like you, I typically start pencil and paper analog. And a lot of times I will jot a couple notes down here and there. I use Yellow Legal Pad more than anything. So I'll just have that next to me whenever I'm thinking about stuff and just throw ideas down as I'm preparing. When I start to really try to create the environment or create the story, the framework of what I want to do in my campaign, I will a lot of times... And I never know what, exactly what this is called, so I'll try to describe it. Do that whole idea map kind of thing where in the middle of the page I'll put a big important event. So let's say the king got assassinated. And then I'll draw a line from there to another little chunk of the page and I'll say... I'll, I'll write over some fact that was important, like uh, he survived by three children. And I'll draw another line to another part of the page... And say the temple guards have no idea what happened. And I'm not aligned to another part of the page where I'll do uh, the clerics were unable to save him because some type of weird magical poison got used. And so I'm making all these little thought bubbles kind of scattered all over the page. And then I'll start going through and drawing more lines to try to connect them. So I'll connect... Uh, the clerics with the temple guard because a retired a retired cleric is now the captain of the guard or something like that. Or I'll connect uh, suspicion between the the Thieves' Guild and some rival political faction. So basically I start circling or drawing little boxes around all these random elements all over the page and then connecting them all over the place. So I've got a big web of ideas, and then I'll usually scribble in little notes along the lines I've drawn to say, oh, okay, well, this is a thing that now happens, or this is the NPC that actually knows this, and then draw a line from him to somewhere else. So basically, I have this big sheet of paper, start really small in the middle, and start throwing all these ideas all over it and connecting them with all these different lines. It's a lot messier than note cards, but it puts it all on one page. And my level of crazy when it comes to creativity means I want to see everything in one place. Now, a lot of times I do this all mentally because I'm driving to work, I'm in the shower, I'm in a meeting. Just like you, I'm always thinking of something in the background. So a lot of times I am just churning out ideas Sometimes I'll just sit there and repeat the one idea that I have. Okay, the king got assassinated, and there's a whole political aspect of this. What comes next? What goes into this? What came out of this? What's the most exciting story to tell? Okay, the king got assassinated. There's a political story. Is this about someone trying to take over? Is this about a secret he knew? Okay, the king got assassinated. There's a political intrigue what's the bigger impact? Is there a war going to happen? Is there some sort of dragon involvement? What's, What's important here? And I'll just sit there for hours at a time just running over the same thing over and over and over and over trying to figure out all the different ways I could go and all the different ways that might be a really good story. And then I'll start writing stuff down. I don't do stuff Uh, digitally on computer as often as I should. A lot of times I'll just have a Google Docs or notepad open on my phone and just type stuff into it randomly. I don't know if that's something I'm going to try to change or not going into the future. There are so many great uh, digital resources out there. I mean, let's, let's put a plug here for network member City of Brass. Tools like that are really, really good at creating a world and keeping all your notes straight. But in my mind, because I know how I think and how my creative process works, I want to go into one of those campaign tools with all my ideas done. So I'm basically filling in the blanks. My creative process is a lot more random and freeform, and I feel like if I'm just sitting here writing down notes on my legal pad and crossing stuff out and scribbling, it lets me be a little bit more organic and effective in my creative process. Although I really like the whole note card thing because then you can move ideas around physically on the table and you can see different connections. It's kind of like every procedural cop show when they have the wall of evidence and they're connecting them you're, you're physically saying okay here's this NPC here's this tavern how do they go together? and you can move them around. And you can say, oh, well, this NPC goes to this tavern, but he lives over here. Or, oh, this NPC runs this tavern. I'm just going to put them together over here. Being able to physically see how your story elements actually relate to each other is a big, big help. So I might start doing it that way.
0: It has worked very well for me. I don't do it as often as I should because every time I do it, I think it helps. It's, it's been very beneficial, and some of the games that I run that I feel are some of my better games are the ones that I have done that with. So it's just a matter of, of dedicating that time. And uh, you mentioned the Google Docs, and that is something that for Rot Iron we did. Is we had some initial, uh, excuse me, we had some initial conversations over social media. We had, a, I think, we had a Google Hangout where we all got together and we talked about it. And then you created a Google Doc, and you just started throwing some prompts like, "I need each of you to answer these questions." And then we would be able to go in and edit. We would see what other people had written. And, you know, that that sort of became a living document that we have used uh, to one extent or another to help flesh out the world. Again, that is kind of an odd example. I don't know if everyone is as comfortable with that total
1: collaboration or not, but it has been an effective tool for us. Doing a shared Google Doc like that is a little bit more, I don't want to say an advanced technique, but it reflects a more open narrative Creativity at the table. You're, you're letting everyone incorporate. You're letting everyone discuss. It's the kind of thing where once you have a group that everyone trusts each other and you trust the creative process and you're willing to really brainstorm and discuss things, it's a lot easier to happen. That's not the kind of thing you can do with a brand new group. That's not the kind of thing that you can do at a convention with strangers. This is something that, hey, we've been playing together for years. Let's really work together and create something together. So one of the things that
0: I want to stress over and over and over again, at least for me in my process, is I think big, but I play small. So what this means for me is let's say that I have a campaign idea where I expect at some point my characters are going to become super important into the the world politics, you know, or certainly like the kingdom politics, but they're not going to start that way. You could very easily start inside a tavern, I know it's cliche, but it's cliche because a lot of us do it. A lot of us do it because it works. So let's say you're starting in a tavern and you decide there's going to be a tavern brawl. So you, uh, you have someone that seems to be out of place and they're getting picked on. So maybe your characters are heroes and they decide to protect this person and they kind of get into the bar fight to keep them safe. You know, you've seen that in a thousand TV shows and movies and books Well, then it turns out that this person who was out of place is the son of someone important. It could be a political person. It could be a crime person. It could be, you know, someone from another kingdom, like a a, a, a diplomat. And the fact that your character stepped in and helped them has put them into the uh, crosshairs, or at least into the periphery, of these powerful people. That doesn't mean that tomorrow they're going to send them off on a secret mission, but they've heard of them. They, they, They know about them. And then maybe later... It could come up where the players ask for a favor. Like, hey, remember that time we saved your son from getting his butt kicked in that tavern? Yeah, we need access to this. And you can plant those seeds even if you don't know what you're growing yet. And I do this all the time. Whether I'm good at it or bad at it, people can have their opinions. But I very often will put in situations where I will not decide ahead of time who that person is. I'll just say, okay, there's someone in the bar that's really important. And that's going to be important later. And then that gives me freedom that if if the players don't do anything, maybe they're like, I don't care. I'm going to let the guy get his butt kicked. Well, now the fact that they didn't intervene may become important later. Like, oh yeah, I know you. You're the guys who let my son or my daughter get the crap kicked out of them or killed. So now you're going to do this for me. And then rather than asking for a favor, they get told they owe a favor. I still have the same connections, but the way that they evolved are different. That makes the world feel a little bit more alive. And I want to relate this to one of the questions we got about factions. You know, how do you build factions in your world where different groups or different players could be involved in different ones? You start with one, and you build from there. And it could be one that a player or character says I want to be a part of, or they, they don't like for some reason. And then you put that one in there, and you see how they relate to it. And if they join it, Great. Well, then you put another faction that's opposed to them at some point in time. Oh, you need my help. Too bad. You are part of the Harpers and I hate those guys. So I'm not going to help you, which adds additional complications. Or you add someone who's an ally to them. I think 13th Age does this very well with the icons where you have these interconnected relationships. And as you become affiliated with these uh, factions, It can either help you or hurt you in future relations. But if if anything, I want to get this entire episode is plan big, but play small. Start with one scene in one place and figure out how you can connect that to the larger world over time. It's like, you know, it's a thousand steps to get to the top of the temple, but each step is equally important along the way. You don't take one step and you're at the top and, you know, maybe you don't even know what's at the top yet. That's okay. I see you've been trying to jump in there, Caleb. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, no, no. I I was really just agreeing with you. I, I like how you're more willing to be flexible with the facts as long as the elements are in place. So what you basically just described was, I want this scene to happen, but it could end a dozen different ways. Your focus is on the scene, on the event, on including a certain element in the story. But how that thing is resolved and its impact on your campaign world and the game, you are more willing to leave up to chance, up to the input of the players, up to a reaction to a choice that a player made.
0: That's something that that has come at, from years and years of playing. You know, as as you said early on, no campaign last first contact with the players. If I've tried to decide ahead of time how my players will react, I'm not playing a game. I'm writing a story, and I have done that. And I have played in games where that was done, and they can be fun. I'm I'm a certain person who says you know a little bit of railroadness I'm fine with, but there is a point where I want my character to have agency. And I think that is a great way to, to include it and let the players and characters do what they want to do, but they're still going to get to where I wanted them to get to. You know, And uh, Jim McClure has said the same thing a couple times regarding his L5R games, is that he'll let us do pretty much whatever we want to do, but we're still going to end up in that final scene. But that final scene is going to be very different depending on how we got there. You know, we could all be on the same side high-fiving each other or we could be in a duel to the death for our honor because of something that we did in the first moments of of the game. And I think that is a great way to run a game.
1: This is another situation where you can kind of steal ideas from your players. If you have said, okay, there's a guy in the tavern, he's very important. How he's important, I don't know yet. There's going to be a fight. This person's going to be involved. And and that's the scene you want to happen. That's the event you want to happen. As it resolves, listen to your players. If they're talking about, oh, what if this guy is the long-lost prince? Oh, what if this guy is a messenger from another country? Oh, wouldn't it be hilarious if this guy is actually a, a dragon polymorphed in disguise? Maybe these little tangent comments can give you a hook for a story that you'd never thought of before. Maybe your idea was, okay, here's this guy. He's probably related to a duke or a king, and I'm probably going to do the whole, hey, you saved my kid, I owe you a favor. Or, you didn't save my kid, you're in trouble. Kind of thing. But someone at the table said, oh, what wouldn't it be cool if... And that thing they said next just caught your attention, you've got a whole new way that you could take this story. And and we've said this many times on the show before, this is one of those moments where if that happens, that player gets really excited. Because now he or she is going to say, oh, that's what I thought. I was right the whole time. Yay. And that's going to make for a story to be told for years to come. Hey, remember that time when there was that weird random dude in a tavern and he was a dragon and I guessed it for no reason? Yeah, that was me. I'm awesome. And that that makes for an exciting element. That makes for an exciting game. That makes for just a fun time. Yeah, don't be afraid
0: for a player slash character to figure out your your big mystery early. The, you know, there's a part of me who wants to be like, I want there to be this grand reveal at near the end of the game where all the pieces fall into place, like Kaiser Jose from Usual Suspects. You know, it's like, oh, that that's beautiful. That makes so much sense, and, and everybody's so happy. We're not writing a script. We're not writing a novel. As much as some of us, myself included, sometimes try to do that, players should have agency in your game, and that's going to cause things to kind of go off the rails a little bit, and and you need to be okay with that, if you just want to kill your characters, you can just kill them by pulling out uh, something out of the monster manual they can't fight and, and killing them. It's not hard to do. If you want to keep your characters in the dark, that's not hard to do. You just make random things that don't really make sense unless you know every detail of your world and they're never going to figure it out. But your players, and I'm, I'm not saying this well, it, the thing about a mystery, and I think we've all, we've all experienced the same thing, where we think we know what's going to happen. And when we are rewarded by that at the end, it doesn't always get there exactly the way we thought. There's almost always another twist in there somewhere, but it's like, okay, I know who's doing it, but I don't know why yet. We feel satisfied. We feel rewarded for solving the mystery, but that doesn't ruin the mystery. Not always. I mean, sometimes if, if, you, watch a, if you watch a movie and in the first five minutes you go, okay, that's the killer, maybe. But that's not exactly what we're talking about here. In this case where... The guy said, yeah, I think that's a polymorph dragon. That's something that's not going to be revealed for probably months or years, game time or real time. It's not going to ruin your your story if at the end, yes, it does turn out to be it's a
1: polymorph dragon. Okay, Michael, I, I think what you're getting at here is that you don't have to scrap your story just because a player might have figured out an element that you considered big and important. So... If we go back to this random idea we had about a guy in a tavern actually being a polymorph dragon, and he's doing some crazy dragony stuff and he's hanging out for whatever reason. If your story revolves around the fact that this is a dragon, and now the players are getting brought into this whole dragon conflict, and that's what your campaign is all about, and one player randomly says, Oh, I bet that's a dragon. Like, he figured out your mystery. You dropped one tiny little clue about, I don't know, smoke dribbling out of the guy's mouth because he forgot to not polymorph that part and he's a red dragon. Or he did something really suspicious and a character rolled an insight check or a perception check and, and got lucky, you know? That type of thing doesn't ruin your twist because what we're talking about here is that big twist moment in the plot. You, as a GM, want to get to that point of, oh, and ta-da, pull back the curtain, it's a dragon. You are excited by that, and you think your players will be excited by that. So, if you can't get to that moment, you feel that the excitement has been pulled away a little bit. And maybe your excitement has actually been taken away because you kind of lost that big reveal, and that's what you were excited for. But... Having a small fact be revealed doesn't ruin the story. Going with this whole dragon thing, you still have the whole excitement of, okay, yeah, this guy was a dragon, but now let's look at the big picture. Let's unpackage the plot. Michael, you said you plan big, but start small. If your big plan is a war of the dragons, your small start is this guy is a dragon. If the players make the connection, this guy is a dragon— They haven't jumped to the big picture War of the Dragons. You still have that in your back pocket. You still have that to reveal. And yeah, a lot of times if you're watching a movie and you figure out who the murderer is in the first five minutes, it's not fun. But that might just be a bad movie. If we're playing a game, the plot hasn't happened yet. Those scenes haven't been shot yet. You as GM still have full license and agency to change everything and make it more exciting if it came up in the first five minutes of the game that this dude is a dragon that doesn't mean your players immediately know what happened and that doesn't mean you have to follow the same path of ideas that you originally had you can make it way more exciting you can bury the lead you can change events you can take them on a completely different tangent side quest And then bring the whole thing back in when it's more mysterious. You can slowly reveal the war. You can slowly reveal the destruction, the chaos, the political intrigue. You can still make it exciting. Just because one fact has been revealed or figured out or not happened the way you thought it should happen, the rest of your story hasn't been written yet. You still have the freedom to revive that concept that your story hangs
0: on. Yeah, there's a couple of things that came to mind there as you were talking. One of them is that meme, and I'm sure you've seen it from, uh, I think it's from the original Jurassic Park, where uh, the guy who plays Newman, that he's having dinner or lunch with the other guy, and they're talking about conspiracy stuff. And he's like, hey, this guy over here is trying to sell me dragon eggs, or whatever it is, and he's like, see, nobody cares. So, yes, if your characters recognize that that character is, a, a you know, NPC is a polymorph dragon, maybe... Maybe everyone else already knew, you know, maybe you get on the fly. You're like, oh yeah, that's Charlie. We just, that's, you know, that's, we just don't mess with Charlie. Yeah. No one cares about Dodson. You can find a way to make it work. And, and my, my actual thought there would be, okay, so my big reveal that there are dragons living among us is, is, is over in the first five minutes. How do I make this interesting? My thought was, okay, so I see this guy and I'm pretty sure he's a dragon. Polymorph is a person. Well, why is he here? Why is there a polymorph dragon in this tavern? And maybe you start scanning the crowd and you see that across the way, there's another person who seems odd and they're looking at each other and they're both getting very angry at each other. And you start thinking, Oh crap, we're about to have a dragon fight in the middle of this tavern. We either need to get out of here or maybe we need to calm things down. And whatever way the characters choose, that could be an interesting story. Like, I would love for the face of a party to get up and go sit down with Mr. Dragon, who he thinks is a dragon, and tries to calm him down because he doesn't want them to erupt into a dragon fight and kill everyone in the tavern collaterally. I mean, you can equate that to like a mob situation where you have two mob bosses who are about to open up fire in a crowded restaurant, and you try to calm them down because you're just trying to protect innocence. That tells me a lot about those characters, and that, that gives me a lot of information that I can use to make that story great further on. Because let's say they all run out of there. I probably would. And then later they hear about this you know, conflagration and an entire tavern was destroyed and you know, thousands of people were killed. How does that make them feel? Are they heroes? Or are they just like, nope, you know, it's all about me? But either way, that's great information for me to continue the story further along the road.
1: Yeah, definitely. Elements of your story... Playing out differently than you expected does not end your story, it simply changes the direction of your story. And in my opinion, it makes it more interesting. Something I've been realizing, and I really knew it all along, but it's just more apparent in, in my mind right now, as we're playing Rot-Iron, the things that happen in our gaming sessions are way more exciting and interesting than anything I could have planned if I was just writing the story titled "Rot Iron. The last session we played, I never would have thought of that. I never would have written that scene, and it never would have gone like it did. Uh, and I know I'm being cryptic here, folks, I apologize, but this is a really great episode, and I can't spoil any of it. Although I kind of might have done so on an interview with James and Kat. So I guess you'll get a little bit of a spoiler. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't help it though. It really wasn't very important to what we were talking about at the time. Um, but But yeah, player input makes the story better for the most part. You're going to have a more engaging, more entertaining, and just flat out better story if everyone is helping out. A group typically has a better project than a single person. Of course, everyone who was in college knows it's absolutely wrong because group projects are horrible. But now we're having fun, and now we're doing something we want to do. We're not writing a paper for Communication 101. And we're also in-
0: involved with people we want to be involved with, not just who we were randomly assigned, because we've sort of evolved over time, and the people we want have stayed, the people we don't have gone. And so you're a cohesive gaming group, not a random assignment of strangers.
1: Right, yeah. We're, we're, we probably have similar ideas, I think with the four of us that are playing wrought iron, we all have our own unique take on things, but we all have a very similar understanding of what tells a good story. And we know how to make something entertaining happen. We're not selfishly saying, well, I want this scene to go this way because I want my ending. But we're also not saying we refuse to give people a spotlight. So you're exactly right. Over time, groups form that are cohesive and are going to be functioning well going forward.
0: And I do want to jump in just quickly and talk to the players who might be listening specifically. You're playing a cooperative story game. And just as I've said in the past, sometimes you just ride the rails for the sake of the game, for the sake of everyone's fun. If there's a session that seems very railroady and it's not your cup of tea, just go along with it for now. And maybe after the game, you talk to the players or DM, say, hey, you know, I don't really enjoy games that are that railroady. Can we try to do something different next time or work towards something different? Totally fine. But in the moment, don't be that person. This is an opportunity to do the same thing. If you just happen to roll crazy well, or for whatever reason, you figure out that the guy at the bar is a dragon, maybe you don't say something. Maybe you just sit on that. Fiction is ripe with examples of people doing dumb things to make the plot work. I would use Batman versus Superman as an example of this. So maybe you just do something really dumb and don't tell anyone else that this guy happens to be a dragon just to let the story continue and get to its its end. I'm not saying you have to do that, but it is, it is an option to just not do the thing where you try to destroy like you're happy that you have messed up the dm's plan maybe you become a co conspirator instead
1: consider passing the dm a note if if you have this guess as a player first off i mean we're going way off topic on a tangent rabbit hole here but is this something your character figured out or is this something you as a player figured out so there's your first hurdle to figure out and overcome maybe you just write a note Maybe you text him. Maybe you pass a sticky note over. Hey, is that due to a dragon? You're just keeping it between the two of you. That's fine. But also, and I am hesitant a little bit to say this, but as a GM, you don't always have to tell the truth. The doctor lies. You can lie. You can fib. It's okay. If someone figures out that this character is a dragon and you don't want them to know that he's a dragon, but he really is a dragon, you don't have to tell them that they're right you could actually make that part of the story. You can say, hey, this character is going kind of crazy thinking that this dude is a dragon and introduce a whole nother element to the story where now this guy who really is a dragon but is lying about being a dragon brings up charges of harassment against this character and gets the town guard involved. And maybe this town now has a weird judicial system where there's trial by combat or trial by running a race, who knows? But the dude really is a dragon and so now, six sessions later, when the dragons have to show up, pull back the curtain, and look who walks into the room. It's the dude that screwed you over in the first session and got you arrested.
0: Ha ha. See every uh, episode of Smallville. <laughs> You're an alien. I am not. Yes, you
1: are. Nope. The end. Right. So, so yeah. We're, we're going kind of crazy here with random things, but the whole point we're getting down to is... When you're building a campaign world, when you're really trying to flesh out what you're working on, there's no right or wrong way to do it. There's ways that are better. There's ways that are easier. There's ways that are harder. But ultimately, I think the conclusion that Michael and I are getting to that we probably said an hour ago, and we're now just restating it, work collaboratively, work socially, flesh out your ideas, be flexible in your ideas. Don't be so married to a specific outcome that you can't massage it or get there in a different way. Think about the events, think about the scenes, and think about different ways they could end. Be flexible, be open, let the story, let the world kind of develop as it needs to. Learn how to be comfortable with answering questions on the fly and making up facts Try to figure out how to be okay with creating a fact that doesn't necessarily have an anchor in the world, but you know it needs one and you can make it up later. And ultimately, be willing to be very flexible and creative with your story components. When you know a thing has to happen, if it doesn't happen in a certain way, don't give up on it and don't let that ruin your story. Figure out a different way to reveal it later. Figure out a way to adapt and make it more interesting. When something changes in your plan, it's not a stop sign. It's just a detour. You, it's add an element that you didn't think of, but it's probably more interesting. And it will definitely make for a better story in the long run. So the way I would sum that up
0: is your campaign world is not an infomercial. Where your players are only there to demonstrate how awesome your product is. And, and look, this world has this thing. That is amazing. I never thought of that before. Your world is a playground that your characters and players get to play in. And they get to explore. And sometimes that means they're going to use things in a way that you didn't expect. They're going to go up the slide. They're going to walk across the top of the jungle gym. They're going to build a fort over in the side by
1: moving things around. They're going to try to wrap the swing around the top rail. Yeah, Absolutely.
0: If they're having fun, they're doing it right. So don't think that your campaign world is so precious that they are messing it up if they don't follow your plot. Because in that case, you are writing a book or a script. You are not playing a game. And I think you've crossed a line into a territory where you may be a brilliant writer.
1: That's still not a, not the game. That's, in my mind, that's not how the game is supposed to go. Yeah, don't be afraid to kill your darlings. And sometimes your darling is your entire story.
0: Now, the last thing I want to touch on, just because we didn't get to it in the in the body of our conversation, is someone brought up pantheons. I will admit that this is probably one of the areas that I am worst at whenever I create a campaign setting. I usually do this last, or I just don't do it at all, and hope that no one plays a cleric, and it just never comes up, because I'm terrible at it. Or I'll just say, uh, we're just going to use the ones from Forgotten Realms, or we're going to use more of like a Native American spirit guide type thing, or we're going to use... Uh, even Game of Thrones, actually, I really like their process that there's the different aspects. One god, one there's the old gods, but then the new god, it has all the different faces. So you have the mother, the, what is it, the the blacksmith, I am screw it up now. But basically, it's one god with multiple facets. And then sometimes I'll just kill all the gods. I have, I have a ton of campaign worlds where all the all the gods are dead, because I
1: just don't like making them up, and I find it very hard to do. Uh, I Yeah, that's fine. Who cares? <laughs> this is one of those things where... If it matters, give some attention to it. If it doesn't matter, don't give attention to it. It's okay. I'm the same way. I've I've made campaigns where I created an entirely new Pantheon, and most of my games, I don't pay any attention to it. I simply say, honestly, most of the times, I don't even bring it up. If a player asks specifically, hey, what Pantheon is available in this game, I say, whatever the hell you want, I don't care. It doesn't matter. If it matters later, I might change something, but Honestly, none of my campaigns, none of my stories, none of my worlds I've created have had a big need for what gods exist where kind of things. Now, I'm sure if I wrote a story or wrote an idea for a story that said it really matters who worships what god and what gods are in play and what gods aren't in play, maybe that's part of the political structure of different cities, of different countries, what have you, then I would certainly pay more attention to it. But... At this point in my gaming career, I haven't really come up with a story that needs that yet.
0: And if you don't care, which in this, most of these cases it seems like we didn't, that's a great way for collaboration. You ask the player who does care, well, what sort of god do you want to worship? And then when they say, okay, well, I want to worship this, it's it's a spirit of uh, chaos, but uh, not in the evil way, but just in the way that life is, you know, unpredictable. Okay, Great an entropy God. Sure. Now that person has created something about your world that you might build on and go, okay, that actually relates back to this other thing in a great way. Maybe one of the past civilizations worshiped them and they died off and, you know, so on and so on and so forth. So the thing that didn't matter to you could become a very interesting and important part of your campaign by letting the characters or the players, create elements that you know it's it goes back to player narration we talked about this before if you're not great at it maybe you say okay you killed the goblin what does that look like you're giving your players a very specific window where they can have full narrative control in a way that has no chance of breaking your game because they're just describing how they killed a thing that's going to die no matter what this is the same sort of thing in the game world i'm not going to let you create an entire kingdom i mean i could but in this case i'm not But I'm letting you create something that doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to the game, and it might become important. And I think that is the true power of collaborative storytelling.
1: And this goes back to an episode a few weeks ago. Yes, there's always a chandelier. Always. If a player asks for something, he or she probably has a specific idea about why it is important. So if a player asks about a deity, I'm going to bet that she's doing something very cool related to that deity. And she needs it to be there for a specific reason. So, yes, have the conversation and try to work together on it. Absolutely. So hopefully we have done a little
0: bit better job this time than last going through our process and also giving you guys some examples of how we have done things, how we have problem solved, and how we have had some success or not in our game. So hopefully it has been helpful to you. Uh, As always, we appreciate you listening. So with that, we'll transition to the end of the episode. We don't have any new reviews to read, and we don't have any new Patreons or patrons, I should say, uh, to welcome aboard. Hopefully, that will change by next week. And there's really not a lot of new Acatecon uh, news, other than to say that it's it's soon. This episode should be out next Tuesday, which means there will then be nine days before the Kickstarter goes live. Yeah, Caleb's eyes just about jumped out of his head when he saw heard me say nine. It, right now, again, I go back and forth between being completely confident and terrified uh, that we're going we're gonna to succeed. So if, if you are on the fence, please jump off the
1: fence. <laughs> Come on our side because we need every help we can get. And, and make sure you jump off the fence on the right side. Uh, jump, Cor- correct. Jump on the Akatakon side. The grass is greenest. Uh, there are no vultures. And we have a Star Trek bridge thingy. Artem- Artemis thing. What? I don't remember what it's called. Artemis Bridge Simulator? Ar- Artemis Spaceship Bridge Simulator. Right. It's not actually Star Trek, but it's Star Trek.
0: Pretty much. Uh, and then just a quick thing about the reviews. We are still having the contest going on. We have hit 10, so we do have at least one Akatakon badge we are going to give away, as well as some cash at Gen Con for you to buy the new cool game or go out to eat or drink or whatever it is you would want to spend some money with at Akatakon. But we have room for more. We need Gen Con. We need more uh, more reviews. So if you have not yet written us one, and I guess I will jump in here. We had a crazy huge spike in downloads last week. I mean, like, astronomical for us. We had more downloads last week than we had for the entire month previous and almost the last two months. So I looked at some of the numbers, and it doesn't look like our new episodes have shot up suddenly. It's that a whole bunch of our old episodes are getting downloaded again, which makes me think we have several hundred new listeners I don't know where you've come from. So please, if anyone out there knows, if we got a shout-out somewhere that I don't know about another podcast, gave us a mention, we were, you know, we were linked in a, a blog post somewhere, whatever, please let me know. I want to thank whoever you know gave us a shout-out if that happened. But if you're new, Thank you. Welcome. uh, Welcome aboard. Hopefully you will stick around and you will find that uh, we do what we can here to provide content that you will find useful. As I like to say, it's either entertaining, educational or inspirational. Those are what we're going for here. But uh, regardless, thank you for finding us and hopefully you'll stick around. Caleb, any last words from you before we shut this down? No, I think
1: we've rambled on long enough today.
0: Yep. Just about out of my quota of rambling. So this has been Michael and for Caleb, we will see you next time.